The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. We are glad that you're here, and uh, if uh, we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here, and it is good to be with you. Uh, if, you are, uh, if you are a visitor, if this is maybe your first Sunday here, you're joining us as we have just completed a series looking at the book of 1 John. Uh, having completed last week, Andrew, our youth pastor, looked at the end of chapter 5 of 1 John, and this morning we're going to take up his next letter, uh, 2 John. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to 2 John. It's near the back of your Bibles. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. And um, surprise, surprise, it comes right after 1 John. <laughs> um, so if you get there, just go a little bit further, a little deeper into the book. But uh, as I was thinking about uh, 2 John uh, this week and, and 3 John for next week, next week we'll look at the book of 3 John, um, as I was thinking about these two letters, I realized uh, I've never heard a sermon preached from these letters, from these books. Um, I've been a Christian since the fall of 99, so that's been, I'm, I'm not sure how many years, um, I'm, you know, but, but it's, been, it's been a few years, right? And, and I've sat in church week after week and, you know, read my Bible and listened to sermons, but, but I realized I've, I've never heard a sermon in this book. And maybe the same is for you. Maybe you've walked with the Lord many years. Maybe you've uh, grown up in the church. And maybe, maybe you have heard a sermon from 2nd or 3rd John. Or, but, but I imagine it wasn't, uh, it wasn't very frequent. Like this isn't a book that pastors maybe come back to again and again and again. Maybe, I, I'm not sure why. Maybe because it's so small, right? Just 13 verses. Maybe because John's other books get more prominence, right? The Gospel of John, 1st John, the book of Revelation. Um, like the, we'll turn to that one and, and spend some time in that. Or, or maybe it's that there are themes in 2nd John and 3rd John that are repetitious to 1st John. And so maybe sometimes it, we have that feeling of been there, done that. Well, for whatever the reason why it is that maybe we haven't turned to this book before, it, it's actually to our own detriment. It's to our shame. Um, because this book, these 13 verse, verses, uh, are beautiful. Uh, in them, what we see is John's heart for the church, his pastor's heart for the church, and what we also see is God's care for his people. And so we're going to spend this morning looking at Second John. So follow along with me in your Bibles. John writes, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. 
Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we acknowledge that we, we want to walk in your ways. We want to abide in Christ. We want to obey you uh, with our words, with our thoughts, with our deeds. We also acknowledge the fact that apart from you, we will do none of these things. We will turn from you. And so we ask that you would help us now. Turn our eyes towards you, open them, soften our hearts, unplug our ears so that we would see the beauty of your word and we would walk with you all of our days. So meet with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last couple days notwithstanding, I imagine that many of you, like me, have been pleasantly surprised and enjoying as the weather has gotten warmer, right? As the trees are starting to bloom, as the grass is turning greener, it can only mean one thing. Spring is upon us, right? And when spring comes, what that really means is that baseball is back, <laughs> That's really what we've been longing for, isn't it? And, you know, the 90 or so day lockout is over. The players and owners pulled it together. They signed their contract. And that means that, that fields in Arizona and Florida are filled again with baseball, right? Spring training has begun. And so these teams are practicing and they're throwing bullpens and batting practice and live batting practice and taking ground balls. And young players are being tested and trained and developed and seeing if they can make the big club. They're practicing games, having exhibition games, and all in preparation for the opening day. Baseball is back. Now, before every game, every baseball game, whether it's the regular season, whether it's the postseason, whether it's spring training, the preseason, there's a ritual that is done. You see, before every game, both managers of both teams will come out of their dugouts. They'll descend upon home plate with the umpires, and they'll exchange the lineup cards. They'll tell one another who will be playing that day. This isn't something that we often give attention to. If you're at a game, you're probably, this is when you're going to go get a drink or a hot dog, right? You're checking your phone to check other scores. This isn't something that we often give attention to. But a few weeks ago, something happened that was a little unique. You see, the Houston Astros were playing the Washington Nationals. And Dusty Baker, who's the manager of the Houston Astros, he comes out of the dugout. He starts walking towards the plate, lineup card in hand. And he starts getting closer to the plate, expecting to see Dave Martinez, who's the manager of the Washington Nationals, meeting him at home plate. But as he got closer to the plate, it became apparent that it wasn't Dave Martinez that he was going to see. You see, it wasn't Martinez walking out. It wasn't another coach. It wasn't the manager. It wasn't even a player on the major league team. No, instead, Dusty Baker, when he approached home plate, he saw Darren Baker his son. 
It was his son, and this was a surprise to Dusty. It was a shock because Darren is a minor leaguer. He has no hope of making the team this season, but there he is wearing the Nationals jersey. There he is coming out as a member of the Nationals to greet his dad. And Dusty is filled with joy. His, his face is filled with a giant smile. He's excited. He's surprised. You can go and watch it online. He starts walking out and he sees Darren and his arms start going like up and down like he's flapping his arms like trying to take off or something because he doesn't know what to do with his body. He's so excited to see his son. His face is filled with joy. He's all smiles and his son, Darren, tried to play it cool. He's a professional after all, and so he extends his hand to shake the opposing manager's hand, but instead of receiving a handshake from his father, he received a hug. Dusty Baker embraced him, and he showered him with love, with celebration, with rejoicing over seeing his son. It's a beautiful scene of happiness and love and rejoicing. It's actually the kind of rejoicing we hear in our passage, isn't it? I mean, that's a physical demonstration of what we hear John saying about the church, right? He says in verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. I rejoiced greatly. When I heard about you, when I heard that you were growing, when I heard about the ways the Lord is working, I rejoiced. You could imagine as he writes this These words that his face is filled with a smile, that his heart is fluttering, that if we could see his arms, they might be flapping. (laughs) He rejoices, and he's rejoicing over the church. That's what we see in verse 1. It says, the elder, that's John, he's referring to himself as the elder, to the elect lady and her children. Now, there is some debate as to who this elect lady is. Some commentators think that the word lady there is actually a proper name, that John has a specific person, a specific woman, and her household, her children in mind as he's writing this letter. Now, that's one way of taking it, but the majority of commentators and scholars think that actually John's not writing to a specific household or a specific woman, but that he's actually writing to the church. That the elect lady is a metaphor for the church, and the reason why is because in our letter, John consistently uses second-person plurals. So he's not speaking to one person, but to a group of people. Also, we know from 1 John that John would sometimes refer to God's people as children, right? Not in a pejorative way, not in a demeaning way, but as an endearing way, as a way of showing affection for them, that they are the children of God. And so it's actually more likely that John's not writing to a single woman, a single household, but he's actually writing to the church. And when he writes them, he rejoices over them. He celebrates. He celebrates and rejoices because of their walk. That's what we see, right? I rejoice greatly to find that some of your children are walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, I rejoice because you know the truth, or I rejoice because you can articulate the truth, or I rejoice because you can affirm the truth, though certainly those things would have been true, right? The church would have 
had to have affirmed the truth and been able to articulate it. But, but when John has an opportunity to rejoice and to celebrate, he rejoices over them walking in the truth. Later in verse 6, he uses that language again, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in them. You see, John, when he rejoices over the church, he's telling us that a faith, a true faith, isn't simply a faith that is espoused, but it is a faith that is evident. It's evident by keeping God's commands. And as he did in 1 John, the commandment that John points us to is the commandment to love. We see it in verse 5. Not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Love. Love. Love for God, John is telling us, is reflected in following his ways. You see, friends, when we see other followers of Jesus following him, growing in their love for him and for neighbor, when we see how the church loves as it was intended to love, not just our church, not just Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia, but when we see other churches demonstrating this love and walking in obedience, that causes us to rejoice. But I wonder if we often think about it that way. I wonder if when we hear about another church, maybe one down the road, maybe one that differs with us on secondary or tertiary issues, maybe one that's not part of our denomination, I wonder if when we hear that they're walking in faith, that they're following God in obedience, that they're growing in grace, that they're demonstrating love, I wonder if instead of rejoicing, we feel a little bit of resentment. See, I think sometimes we can actually treat the kingdom of God like it's a zero-sum game. You know what that is? Zero-sum, like if, if I rejoice over them, then who, who's going to rejoice over me? If I rejoice over them, then, then there won't be enough rejoicing to go around. And so we treat the kingdom of God like a zero-sum game sometimes. You know, a couple of years ago, um, my son Cole, who's in fifth grade at the time when he was in third grade, he and his buddy Dylan were in the backseat of my car. It was after two back-to-back -back soccer games. And on these two games, Cole's team had won both games. In the first game, it was a blowout. I mean, they just destroyed the team. It was like 11-0. And Cole, the, uh, two years ago, played striker, not fullback. And in that particular game, Cole scored five goals. He was on fire. It was like he was playing out of his mind. Um, but in the second game, Cole didn't score any goals. And it was close. It wasn't a blowout. It was a really close game, and his buddy Dylan, who's in the backseat, scored two goals, and we won the game. And I sat listening to them talking and rehearsing and rehashing the game, and, and Dylan pipes up, and he goes, Cole, Cole, I can't believe you scored five goals. That was awesome. You were on fire. It was amazing. And Cole interrupts him and goes, yeah, but, but Dylan, you got two goals in a close game when, when every single goal mattered. Like, your goals, they were more important than my goals. We were going to win whether I scored it, but your goals... And, and Dylan chimed up, and he goes, but Cole, you were killing it. You were dominating. And Cole jumps in and goes, yeah, but when the pressure was on, and they kept going back and forth like this, rejoicing over one another. 
You see, Dylan didn't sit there full of disappointment that he didn't get five goals, and Cole wasn't upset that he didn't get the game winner. No, they celebrated and rejoiced over what the other had done. And y'all, that's what the church is to be like. See, this is where our children can teach us. You see, the kingdom of God is not a zero-sum game. That we are to rejoice and celebrate. That as the church universal grows in faith and deepens in love and walks in obedience, that it is cause for rejoicing. Rejoicing not only about what God is doing here, we can rejoice about that about the work that God is doing in one another's lives, of how he is growing and maturing us, but but also rejoicing when we hear that Westminster PCA is growing in obedience, or rejoicing that a new church plan is getting started in Salem that will be a gospel presence and proclaim the truth to that area, or rejoicing and celebrating that the Hill Church is following God's lead and walking in step with him and reaching an area of our city that we may never reach. We can rejoice when the kingdom moves forward. We can rejoice when churches are growing. We can rejoice when God is at work, not just in our midst, but in the midst of his church. We rejoice. I mean, that's what John is doing. He heard that some of them were walking in step with the Lord, and he rejoiced. But even in the midst of this rejoicing, John also calls the church to watch. Look at verses 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Do you hear what he said? Watch yourself. Be watchful. And why? Because there are deceivers who would seek to lead you astray. Now, if you're with us as we're going through 1 John, this should actually sound very familiar because we heard about this, right? In 1 John, John spoke about those who were once part of the church, who had once proclaimed that they believed in Jesus. They were part of the fellowship, but over time they departed from the fellowship, and they departed because they were promoting a teaching that was contrary to God's word. They were promoting that Jesus hadn't actually come in the flesh. They were promoting that Jesus wasn't incarnate. If you were with us a number of weeks ago, we went over that. Right? How that they believed that, yes, there was Jesus, and he was here, and he, he went to the cross, and these, but, but physically, right, he, there was something else going on. They were promoting a heresy. That there were those who were teaching and proclaiming and leading away from the gospel. And John says of these people, they are not from God. We see it in verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Everyone who goes on ahead, that language goes on ahead. The New Testament theologian Robert Yarbrough says that what this is getting at is presenting something different, faithlessly novel, and supplanting what was former established and valid. 
So what they were doing was they were saying, okay, we know the gospel. We've heard the basics of the gospel, the truth. But, but we need to go beyond that. We need to deviate from that. We need to leave that behind. And let's go on to something deeper, something, something more robust. Let's move away from the elementary principles. Let's go on ahead. Now, I had a professor in seminary, Dan Doriani. He's a New Testament professor. And I remember in the very last class of our Gospels class, it was my second semester of first year, and I remember he stood in front of the class on that last day, and he said to these future pastors, he gave us a calling. He gave us a charge, and he said, dare to be boring. Dare to be boring. It stuck out to me. Now, in saying dare to be boring, he wasn't telling us that we should stand in front of our churches and speak with monotone voices. None of y'all want that. He wasn't telling us to be dull in our interactions or to look like we, there are other places we'd rather be. No, no, when he said dare to be boring, what he was calling us to was to resist the temptation to be novel. He was calling us to instead to hold fast to the gospel. Because, you see, he knew that our world, like John's world, is very prone to embrace the new and the novel and the innovative. Now listen, the innovation can sometimes be good, right? I mean, we like our longer-lasting light bulbs, don't we? <laughs> and as gas prices are going up, aren't we glad that we have mileage on our cars that, that are better than they were 50 years ago, right? Innovation in some places is actually good. It's helpful. It promotes flourishing. But when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the truth of who Jesus is, innovation is not good, it's not something that should be embraced. No, when it comes to the fact that Jesus came and he was incarnate and he was born of the Virgin Mary and he lived a perfect life and he died for sinners like me and for you, that he rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven and is one day returning, that message we never innovate. That message we always hold firm. And in that message we dare to be boring. Because to, to move beyond that message to grow beyond that message, to think that we mature beyond those elemental teachings about the gospel and about Jesus means that we will abandon the way of Jesus. It means that we will turn away from the gospel and the truth. And we are never to go beyond the gospel. We are never to abandon the way of Christ. And so John says, watch yourselves. Watch the manner of your walk. Listen and pay attention to the voices that you're giving attention to. For John even goes on as far to say, if anyone comes and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now John isn't saying that your non-believing neighbor like, don't have him in your house, don't show hospitality, don't, don't stand outside and have a conversation. That's not what John's talking about. We know he can't be talking about that because those were the very things Jesus did, right? Jesus spent time with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and the people that the rest of the community thought were unseemly. Now, John's not talking about engaging with unbelievers. He's talking about those who would come and say that I speak for Jesus, that I represent the church, and they are actually turning away from the church. 
that we would not receive them as a brother or sister, that they're going beyond the gospel, and so we are to be watchful, watchful over our lives, right? That's what John said, watch your life. Not, not fixate on others' lives. Watch your life. The manner in which you are walking. As Paul puts it, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so, friends, as we walk with the Lord, we do so. We watch our lives and we walk in step with the Lord because in doing so, we receive the promised reward. That's what John says in verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Now listen, don't confuse this with justification by works. John's not saying that we earn God's favor. He's not saying that the blessing of eternal life can be merited, that if we just walk in Jesus's ways for enough years, or if we just stay on the path, then then all of a sudden God will shower us with love and blessing. That is not what he's saying. No, what he is saying is that those who know Jesus and trust in him, that the blessing of eternal life should prompt us to live in light of that blessing today. That those who are trusting in Jesus, our lives, our walk, will be reflective of that belief in Jesus. We see in verse 9 that he helps clarify what he's talking about when he describes those who have gone on ahead. He says they are those who don't abide in the teaching of Christ. And because of that, they don't have God. But whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. You see, those who have the Father and the Son, our walks, our lives, and the manner of our lives will be reflected that we have the Father and the Son. That we are abiding in Him. You see, those who have the Son abide in Him, and our lives will reflect our abiding. We will be those who watch the way we walk and follow Christ. You know, a number of uh, months ago, my family and I, we drove up the parkway and we uh, hiked uh, Sharp Top at Peaks of Otter. I know many of you have done this hike. If you haven't, you should. It's, it's well worth it. And, and if you have done it, you know that that couple-mile hike up to the top of peaks, uh, of sharp top, you are rewarded with an incredible view, right? 360-degree view of the surrounding area. When it's clear out, you can see for miles and miles. I mean, it is beautiful. And if you've done it, you know the beauty of it. But, but if you've done that hike, you also know that as you are ascending up the mountain, that the path up gets very, very narrow in certain places. In fact, so narrow that my family, we, we had to walk single file as we were going up. And as we were going up, one of my children got a little nervous when we hit that narrow part. They got a little nervous because you are very close to the edge. And there are portions of it that are very, very steep. And that if you give, you know, one foot in the wrong direction and you are in grave danger. And so they got a little nervous, and they started to slow down, and their pace started to to slow, and they actually started to freeze a little bit. I'm like, am I going to have to carry this child all the way up? (laughs) But Kat and I, we sought to calm their nerves. We told them, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear so long as you stay on the path, as long as you follow the way, as long as you watch your step. There is nothing to fear. Now, if you step off the path, yes, it will lead to danger, to pain, to loss, but 
but staying on the path, watching your steps, it is safe, it is firm, and it is sure. And friends, that's what John is telling us. That for those who follow Jesus, that we will watch our steps. We will follow his path. We will walk according to his commandments. And as we do this, friends, it will be cause for rejoicing. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your son, our Lord Jesus, so that we would abide in his ways, that we would walk in his path, that we would follow him. Father, we thank you that you have sent your spirit to remind us of all that Jesus has spoken and to lead us into your truth. And so we pray that today in all of our days that you would guide our feet, that you would direct our paths, that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so that today in all of our days we would rejoice at your work in and through us. So Father, do this, we pray so that Jesus would be made much of in our lives and that we would grow in maturity, in likeness of Christ, in love of our God and our neighbor. We ask that you would do this in Christ's name. And God's people said together, Amen.